Welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM. This show is what happens when two biologists self-isolate together and need to find something to do other than meticulously documenting the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie. And I'm Andrew. And we're back in another full-on, full-blown lockdown. Yep, it's the most intense kind of lockdown we've had, I think, apart from maybe March last year. But the difference is that I've discovered in this one, I'm a key worker. Are you? What kind of incredible, life-saving actions are you taking? Well, I spend my time sat at a desk, Mm -hmm. at at home, I don't need to go into the office, drinking coffee and writing about conservation. Okay, so long-term, potentially saving lives, I guess. Yeah, long-term, I like to think that it's, you know, contributing something and important. But I sort of feel like all of the health workers and supermarket staff and postmen and, and all of those kind of people might be a little bit offended by the fact that I'm also a key worker now. Yeah, we're kind of being facetious here. So um, they've decided that, I guess it's all university workers. University staff. University staff are enough key workers to send their kids to schools. Yeah. Which I'm I'm not judging anyone's personal circumstances, but when you look at us in particular, I don't think we should be allowed, personally. we, We don't have kids, but if we did, I'd feel... I, I don't know. I, I find it hard to feel like I'm contributing as much to this situation as, say, yeah, teachers and nurses and stuff. Although you are contributing quite a lot to the coffee industry at the moment. Yeah, I think I'm single-handedly propping up our local cafes. So. Yeah, <laughs> single-handedly <laughs> propping up a whole plantation in Colombia. Yeah. Anyway, enough about your slightly worrying coffee addiction and on to the science. Science of the Week. It's that time of week where I embarrass you thoroughly by finding out how little you actually know about science. Another reason why I'm probably not a key worker. (laughs) Yep. So have you been meticulously scanning the scientific news this week? No, as ever. I like to, you know, take it fresh, keep it spicy. Yeah. (laughs) By spicy, do you mean just be bad at it? I just, yeah, think on my feet. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Well, we're really excited for that. I'm glad that a PhD from Cambridge gets you that level of winging it. But anyway, okay, well, let's just dive straight in. Number one, what dubious climate record did 2020 share with 2016? I don't know, but I'm going to guess maybe hottest year on record. It was the hottest year on record. Woo! Which is not as exciting as it sounds. Great news for all those climate change deniers. Oh, yeah. You've you've met your fair number. <laughs> Turns out, little aside, if you go on Inside Science and talk about your PhD work on climate change, some weird people, sorry, perfectly reasonable members of the public slide into your DMs. Yeah, literally got an email before the show had finished airing telling me that I didn't need to worry because climate change was all a hoax. Yeah, which is really very kind of them, but also probably didn't need their opinion. We say this on a show on which we also say, hey guys, please email us, but we want your opinion, just not this random guy from the internet. Please email us. Anyway, going back to uh, what I was discussing. Yes, it was the hottest year on record. By bare numbers, it was slightly cooler than 2016, but this difference was not statistically significant. So 2016 and 2020 share that unwanted record of being the hottest years ever recorded. We're not excited, are we? No, it's not really good news. So 2020 was around 1.25 degrees centigrade hotter than the pre-industrial period average. However, 2020 got its own heat record that it didn't need to share with 2016. 
it was the hottest year on record in Europe, which was around 0.4 degrees warmer than 2019, which was the previous hottest year on record. Ah. Which is surprising because 2018 was very hot, right? Yeah, we think of 2018 as being, you know, our most recent heat wave, here in the UK at least. Yeah, because that but... summer was incredibly hot. But I guess what this is looking at is, firstly, not just in the UK, but also across the year in general. Yeah. So this will look at things like mild winters as well as just yeah. super hot summers. And actually, I guess there's in some ways more scope for having a winter which is a lot warmer than normal. And it'll still feel cold, right? If it's a yeah. winter which is a couple of degrees warmer than normal, you're still going to feel chilly. You just, you know, it's just still not good. Yeah. But the most worrying record goes to the Arctic and Siberia, where 2020 temperatures reached over six degrees centigrade above the temperature for 1981 to the 2010 reference period. Oh, that's not even that's, that's not even long term ago reference. No. No, no, no. So you'll notice here that I'm comparing the temperatures this year to two different references. So that's the pre-industrial period, which is 1850 to 1900, and the post-industrial reference period, so that's 1981 to 2010. So it was six degrees hotter than the average between 1981 and 2010. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <gasps> that's it's that's roasting. Yeah. So it's useful to look at both of these different reference periods because we can then understand the differences that we're making in both in a short-term and long-term perspective. So we can see what human industrialism has done in general, but also see how we're mitigating or exacerbating, and I think stress on the exacerbating at the moment, that on a, a more recent timescale. Yeah. So these results were monitored and announced by the team at Copernicus, which is the EU's flagship Earth observation programme. I mean, 2020 has been an absolute dumpster fire for the history books we have the pandemic that must not be named we have the hottest year on record but who knows with another hardcore lockdown scary political events in the u.s and continued excessive consumption maybe 2021 can dash in and steal its ugly overheated virus infested crown yeah well i mean you never know climate change is only going in one direction so it is but we are being pessimistic, right? We can think about the good things that 2021 has going for it. What are those good things? Uh, Long, awkward pause while we stare at each other. No, 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 right? We should be optimistic. We have vaccines, which we're not going to talk about because they're COVID related. But here yeah. on Lockdown Science, we're very pro-vaccine. We have Biden about to enter the White House. And therefore going to rejoin the Paris Agreement. Yeah. So that's good for climate change mitigation. We're seeing more countries setting ambitious goals for climate change. Yeah, that's Whether true. they meet it or not, we're not sure, but it's the first step of that. And I think 50 countries have just signed up to a commitment for 30% protected areas as well. Well, there we go. We love to see it. So 2021, you haven't started off the best, but we still have hope in you. Yeah. Number two. A paper was published in Nature Genetics this week that revealed something very interesting about so-called identical twins. What was it? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like you might have given me a clue in the way you phrased the question. I there. don't know. I think I was very deadpan and serious, actually. Are they, are they not really identical? They are not so identical at birth, after all. Hmm. The paper by Janssen et al. shows that a number of mutations take place very early in development. In fact... Identical twins differed by, on average, 5.2 early developmental mutations. Oh, okay. Isn't that funny? So they're identical at the point of conception, mm. but then they have mutations after that, which mean that they end up 
being different. Yeah, so this is really interesting because identical twins, as you know, are often used in studies to look at the relative impacts of genetics versus environment on, you know, things like disease risk. Yeah. And, you know, whether that's that's physical or mental health. Because basically it's assumed that, that they're born genetically identical and any differences arise thereafter on account of their environment. So this research shows that actually scientists have got to be a lot more conservative about the assumptions that they make in these studies because differences could have also been caused by these very early developmental mutations. Mm. Also, that's really interesting, because I wouldn't necessarily have thought that you'd have time for there to be mutations that early on, that would then, I guess, essentially it's saying it basically affects the whole body, because Mm. it happens so early that, you know, you're only a couple of cells. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, we're talking about what we're saying here, an average of 5.2 early developmental mutations. And these may well not be things that you can see. So these people still look absolutely identical, potentially. It may actually make no difference phenotypically. It might not. At the moment, if two identical twins get to the age of 40 and they look quite different, you'd kind of think, okay, what jobs were they doing? What was their diet like? All that sort of stuff. But actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Or maybe simpler. It depends how you look at it, right? It might not all be about environment. It could also be about these early mutations. So essentially, they weren't born identical. That's really interesting. It's really interesting. Very cool. But it raises the possibility that those earlier twin studies were making inaccurate conclusions. Mm. And that's why there's been a fair amount of hype around this, because that was kind of the gold standard of comparative studies. Obviously, it wouldn't be ethical to put humans into different treatments like we do with a lot of animals. Yeah, although that didn't stop people back in the day, right? No, it didn't stop people back in the day. I mean, there were very dark periods of history where that did happen. Luckily, these days, that doesn't pass ethics committees. But what is seen as ethical is just to look at identical twins and just instead of experimenting on them, asking them about their lifestyles, finding out what they've done naturally instead of implementing things they have to do. Yeah. But... Maybe it's not as simple as that. Maybe we can't say, oh, well, identical twins, there's that difference. It must have been caused by that big stress you had in your life or it might have happened in the womb. Yeah. Really, I, oh, I love this. I think it's really brain. interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. Also, I'm never going to look at identical twins the same. Number three, the designs for a statue in Lyme Regis of which scientific figure have been released this week? Oh, no. Think Lyme Regis. Lyme Regis as in... Dorset. Yes. As in Jurassic Coast. Yes. As in fossils. Yes. Oh no. Oh no. You know who you mean, don't you? I do know who I mean. It's a woman. And this is part of the problem. This is part of the problem. Found loads of early dinosaur fossils. She did. And I can't remember her name. No. Because I've been indoctrinated by the patriarchy. Thank you. Mary Anning. You know her name. I do know her but, name. But her name has not been taught enough in yeah. schools. I, I would I would say actually, I'm not sure I know the names of any early paleontologists. I mean, but I take that I take I take the point that in general yes, this is this is a big problem. And I'd also say that you know, in contrast to a lot of people who maybe would be able to name all the celebrities but not Mary Anning, you can't name that many people, to be honest. I can't know. You have a fairly bad memory, so that kind of says less about Mary Anning than it does about you. But anyway, yes, it was Mary Anning. So the Mary Anning Rocks group, get it, has (laughs) has has been campaigning for a statue to be erected in Lyme Regis to commemorate Mary Anning and her work in the town where she discovered many of her important fossils. How much do you know about Mary Anning? 
This is embarrassingly little. I remember seeing a program about her. Did she discover the first ichthyosaur? Yes. Okay, you know, look, it's good you know something because, as Mary Anning Rocks points out, she was a woman and a poor one at that. So her contributions to science were largely forgotten and left out of the history books. So, little biography of Mary Anning very quickly. She was born in 1799. And from a young age, she searched for fossils along the Jurassic coast in Dorset. Despite finding some of the most illuminating fossils of all time, ones that changed our understanding of paleontology, including, like you said, the first ichthyosaur and the first complete Pleosaurus, she wasn't acknowledged in the scientific literature. Mm. Now, this is because, due to her family's poverty, she would find, dig and clean her discoveries, but then sell them on to wealthy male scientists, who would then publish about the fossils and take all the blooming credit mm, sounds familiar sounds so it makes me so angry i need to not get angry because i need to continue with this but ah they didn't even credit her yeah that's that's incredibly poor such poor behavior yeah even the geological society of london didn't accept her as a member because women weren't allowed to be admitted until 1904 because they'd I have no idea, menstruate all over the place. I don't know what men thought women were going to do, but generally they thought they were inferior. So there we go. 1904. Anyway. That's mad. So long story short, they did her dirty. She is now acknowledged as being one of the most influential women scientists in history, but many still haven't heard her name. So the idea is that a statue will provide some of the recognition that she deserves. I also found some... Fun, in inverted commas, facts on the Mary Anning Rocks website. There are, they really are hard quotation marks on fun there because they're really sucky. In the UK, what percentage of our civic monuments are of specific named women that aren't either royalty, biblical or mythical? So that's not including statues of like Queen Victoria, Mary, the mother of Jesus or some Greek goddess. I don't know, five to 10%? 2.7%, mate. What? Shocking. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, oh, dear. We know that this bias doesn't just affect women, right? There are incredibly few statues of people of colour in the UK, too. Yeah. Basically, almost all statues are of rich white men, which sounds like I'm being super negative. So, to add something positive to finish this question, Mary Anning Rocks is still currently short of money for erecting their statue, but you can head over to their website to find out how you can speed it along and get her a bit of recognition. Sounds like a good thing to do. I mean, 2.7%. Apparently there are a fair number which are, yeah, Queen Victoria, Mary, and like scantily clad Greek nymphs. Yeah. But no, not not actual women from history. I mean, were there women in history? Who knows? I don't know. I mean, not if you read the history books, right? Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Number four. What is this noise? Okay, what do you think that noise was? I mean, the first bit sounded a little bit like the noise they do on Family Guy when they're taking the mickey out of Star Wars and doing a sort of pew 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 pew. Okay, so like so guns, it sounded or kind a of theremin. spacey. But I, I also, I actually wonder whether it was recorded under the sea. Okay, um, so there were some thuds in there hmm. as well. The pew pew sounded sort of biological, but the thuds almost sounded like geological. Mm. underwater volcanic rift. No, but you're along the right lines, kind of. 
It's the sound of Lake Davos in Switzerland singing. Oh, I've put singing okay. in inverted commas. Now, you know it's a lake making that noise. Do you know why? Ice melting? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. It's because it's partially frozen over, but temperature changes are causing the ice to crack. And that weird, like, uh, whale song-esque okay. kind of noise is the sound of it cracking. Uh, and then the thuds are what things suddenly moving. Yeah, so the thuds are where it kind of cracks and moves, and the, the pinging is the is the crack literally happening. Oh wow! Apparently, it's only going to last until the next snowfall when the singing will become muffled. I just mm. thought that was really cool. Yeah, that is very cool. It doesn't sound really otherworldly. Yeah. So is this something that people have just recorded for a bit of fun? Or would... Yeah, people have just recorded it. It's, it's been happening a lot recently, and this year it seems to just be particularly intense. Very cool. I really want to go hear that. Can you imagine what it would be like walking alongside the lake while it was doing that? So it's loud enough that you can hear it just Yeah, just, just walking. There. Oh, that's because it sounds like it's sort of something that's recorded on a really high-spec mic. No, and it's, it's, under not, the water it's not to... recorded underwater. It's recorded above the water. Oh, wow. Okay. That's not at all what I was thinking. I thought it was like specialist equipment that scientists had shoved down into the lake for some reason. No, 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 no. It's, mm. It does sound alien yeah. and it sounds very high-tech, but it's literally just a normal mic outside. Mm. I love it. I really want to go listen very to cool. it. Number five. This question is a two-parter and you get half a point for each correct oh, no. answer. Flipping it. No, it's all right. It's a topic you like. It's okay. David Attenborough. Okay, okay. This week, what is one thing that Sir David Attenborough has confirmed that he has done and one thing he said he won't do again? Has he received the COVID vaccine? Yes, that's one thing he has done. He has confirmed that he has had the COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, what... that is a relief because, frankly, he should have been top of the list. I know, as exactly. soon as, as soon as we had a vaccine that we knew was safe, give it to David Attenborough. I know. I, so I'm not going to dwell too much on the vaccine except to say, yes, protect everyone's dream grandparents. Protect them at all costs. Yeah. You know, he started trending because of this. And then someone said, he needs to stop trending because it makes people's heart rates go up. <laughs> And then he's trending and you realise it's because he's had a vaccine and you're like, okay, good, good, good. Put him back in his burrito blanket fort where he's safe. Bubble wrap. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so what so has that's he what said... he has done. What has he said he's never going to do again? I, I don't know. I mean, presumably quite a few things. Like, he's done a lot of stuff in his life and a lot of it was quite active and, you know, maybe he won't do some of that again. No, think of something much less David Attenborough-like. It's not to do with adventure. It's pretty down to earth. Uh, he is not going to go back on Instagram. Oh, uh, okay. Do you know anything about his previous foray into the Instagram world? Yeah, I don't use Instagram at all. And one of the very few things that I do know about it is that I think he took the record for the fastest to a million followers on it. Was it a million? Yeah, it was a on... million. Do you know how fast he got a million followers? About six seconds. No, no, <laughs> not, not that quick. But he did take the record. He joined the site in September and he broke the record for the fastest person to get to a million followers. And it took him four hours and 44 minutes. Okay. That's yeah, very that's impressive. very, very fast. Yeah. So he... But was it him doing it? No. Okay. So it looked like it was him. He posted a series of conservation-inspired messages to his millions of adoring fans. But it was actually run by BBC filmmaker Johnny Hughes and the World Wildlife Fund's Colin Butfield. And it was set up to precede his book and Netflix documentary, A Life on Our Planet. Now, despite the fact that people were clearly here for it, just two months after his glorious debut, he left the site again. And in an interview with BBC One's Greg James this week, he confirmed he won't be going back, saying that he's got enough problems with the post. 
So apparently he receives about 70 old school letters a day. Wow. He's a busy man. People want a piece of Sir oh, David. Oh, and you know that he tries to reply to all of he them. He does. Apparently he does. Oh. Apparently if you send him a stamped address envelope, he would reply to you. Let's do it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like we should. We can just... He's, he's got too much to do. Just send him one telling him that we love him. He doesn't need to reply. No. He just, it's okay. Just take our praise and just accept it. Oh. Sir David. Oh. Wow. So you're not on Instagram. Would having Sir David on there make you any more likely to join? Or are you just completely against it? I'm not sure. No, I don't think that would make me any more. I'm not completely against it, but I just don't have the time. And I don't... I don't think that would that would make a difference. But what if you'd lovely Sir David were there giving you a little dose of grandparenty goodness? What if you could just fall asleep playing Sir David in your ear? But I can do that with Netflix. I don't, oh, that's I don't need true. Instagram. That's true. I'm not sure I'm not sure what it what it's providing in this world no, for That's true. Well, no, so the really good thing about it is it's it's meant to be engaging sort of younger people. Oh yeah, no, I mean to- totally. I I see the value of him being on Instagram for other people, but I don't I don't think there's anything that it would provide to me. Yeah, that's as true. As someone who's already a big fan of him and oh, I l- would just watch him on Netflix. I love him so much. He's so wholesome. Protect him at all costs. I'm so happy you got the vaccine, and that is all I will say about COVID. We are very oh, pro. You said the c word. I know. I'm sorry, but we are pro Sir David getting his vaccine. Okay, so at the end of that round, which was mainly me complaining about the patriarchy and confessing my deep love for David Attenborough, you got a grand total of two and a half out of five. Fifty percent. Fifty percent. That would get you a two-two. I think at a university, respectable, respectable grade. You know, you've done worse. Journal Club. Right, so it's time to share some of the favourite science papers we found this week. Andrew, do you want to go first? What have you got for me? Okay, this week I found one of your favourite topics. Okay, intrigued. And, and I'll bite. Any guesses? Uh, animals. No, no, not dogs and cats. Cake. No, not baking. Oh, what else do I like? Sleep. Oh, I do like sleep. You do like a good Oof, night's sleep. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing. So, as we all know, a good night's sleep is really important. Mm. But sleep apnea is a disease which afflicts many people, Mm. particularly as they get older or if they're overweight. So sleep apnea is where essentially whilst you're sleeping, your airways sort of collapse a little bit. And so you have trouble breathing and it leads to really disturbed sleep patterns for the sufferers and often their partners. Because if you're in bed with someone and they're kind of waking up and and having disturbed sleep, you're, you're getting woken up as well. It also increases your daytime sleepiness because you're not getting a good night's sleep. And so that can have knock-on effects on your ability to work and stuff. So in extreme cases, patients are normally asked to try something which is called continuous positive airway pressure therapy, which was a bit of a mouthful and possibly the most obscurely named treatment I've ever come across. I think I've seen these. Are these CPAP machines? Yes, I think So so. They almost look like you've got, well, they sound like a Darth Vader mask almost. Yes. Yeah, Mm. exactly. Yeah. So they describe this as a therapy and it sounds like something that they might do during the day or some kind of drug that they might give you or something. It's not. It's basically rigging yourself up to a breathing apparatus using a mask and a tube while you're asleep so that the machine essentially maintains the air pressure and keeps your airways open and is, is kind of helping you to breathe. So it's actually really quite invasive. Yeah. And it's thought that this is about 100% effective in alleviating sleep apnea if it's used correctly. But the problem is that it's really uncomfortable and 
people, you know, it gives other reasons why people can't sleep because they've got a mask on their face. And I've heard they're loud as well. Yeah, so the uptake of them is actually really low. So it's estimated that about 8% of people actually stop using this after the first night of trying it. Okay, that's not effective. No, and 50% stop within a year. Right. So although it's a device that works, it's something which is so unpopular because it's otherwise inconvenient that massively lowers the overall effectiveness, right? In particular, patients with moderate symptoms are reluctant to bother using it. So sleep doctors need alternative treatments which are easy to get patients to comply with. So if I told you that music was involved in the proposed sleep treatment, what would come to mind? So I'm thinking maybe some like meditative music, you know, like whale song, maybe. Yeah. Ooh, the sound of Lake Davos. Lake Davos singing. Singing. Yeah, just yeah. To, like a nice kind of lullaby to mm, tended sleep. I'll try that. Well, following a suggestion from a didgeridoo instructor, Milo Puhan and colleagues set out to test whether practising the didgeridoo could reduce the symptoms of sleep apnea. D- practising the didgeridoo during the day? Yes. No, not at night. Just okay, sat there all night. Because that sounds loud and invasive. It does, yeah. It <laughs> possibly the only thing louder at night than the sleep apnea machine. Yeah. The didgeridoo instructor, Alex Suarez, suggested that he and some of his students had experienced reduced daytime sleepiness and snoring after practising the didgeridoo, mm. with one player reporting an eightfold decrease in medically measured sleep apnea. What? Yeah. Now, this does sound a little bit suspicious, right? So so this is a didgeridoo instructor in Switzerland suggesting that playing the didgeridoo can alleviate a medical condition. It's very convenient for him. Now, yeah, I don't know how common didgeridoo playing is in Switzerland, but it does sound a bit like a cunning ruse to sort of drum up some business. Mm. But the science is rigorous. So the scientists and the didgeridoo instructor conducted a randomised control trial in which 25 participants suffering from moderate sleep apnea were randomly assigned to a control group or an intervention group. So 14 patients were instructed to take up didgeridoo lessons with four lessons over an eight-week period. Throughout this time, and for another two months afterwards, participants in this group were required to practice for at least 20 minutes on at least five days a week. And in this time, the other 11 patients were put on a waiting list for lessons for four months. Mm. Um, And this was done blind, so the scientists didn't know which patients were receiving lessons and which weren't. Clever. That's an important step. Always good to to kind of make it as as truly sort of non-biased as possible. So at the start and at the end of the four-month period, the patient's symptoms were tested. Their daytime sleepiness, measured apnea symptoms overnight, a self-reported quality of sleep index and their partner's rating for sleep disturbance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so of these four outcomes, three were found to have improved significantly more in the didgeridoo playing group than in the control group over the four months. Weird. Yeah. So didgeridoo players recorded a greater reduction in daytime sleepiness, and their partners reported less sleep disturbance, while the scientists also measured that they had reduced symptoms of sleep apnea at night. How strange. There was no difference in the self-reported quality of sleep between the two groups. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but there was, but there was still actually a reduction. Okay. It just wasn't, wasn't. They uh, couldn't feel it. It wasn't themselves. statistically significantly okay. different. Yeah. So what's going on here? That's why? What I'm wondering. Yeah. Why would playing the didgeridoo help you to sleep better? Well, it's not really about sleeping, but about breathing. So as I said, sleep apnea is caused by collapsing of the upper airways while the patient is lying down, and this leads to a reduced airflow and therefore interrupted sleep. The techniques required to play the didgeridoo effectively strengthen the muscles which control airway dilation or widening 
and wall stiffening, meaning that the muscles are better able to prevent the airways collapsing when the patient lies down. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. The authors then report that the reduction in symptoms in didgeridoo players is only slightly less than observed in patients undergoing continuous positive airway pressure therapy which is possibly to be expected since they were testing the didgeridoo on patients with moderate rather than severe symptoms. Mm. And so actually this is kind of comparable to the standard kind of treatment for this problem. But importantly, of course, uptake of didgeridoo playing was really high. So all 14 of the patients continued practising throughout the four months. They had no dropouts. And for an impressive average of nearly six days a week. And remember that they were only required to actually do five. So, so they actually they, just enjoyed it. They actually just liked it and went above and beyond what they had to do. So not only is it effective, but people will actually do it. And of course, by building up the muscles in the airways, this is really tackling the cause of the sleep apnea rather than just the symptoms. So in the long run, it could actually kind of alleviate it properly rather than just kind of allowing people to sleep better. Mm. And the didgeridoos only cost about eighty euros each, oh, okay. which I'm guessing is less than the mask and tube apparatus. Oh, presumably, for the sleep machine. yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder whether it's a didgeridoo specific thing, or whether you could get the same effect with, I don't know, playing the trombone, where you have to also control your airflow a lot, or singing, which is also about incredible breath control. It's interesting. They make a comment in, at the end of the paper about the fact that one of the what I mean, they frame it as a limitation of this that their control group wasn't a complete control because they didn't have a... Normally for a medical trial, you'd have a placebo, right? So so rather than just doing nothing, you do something, but something that's known to be ineffective. Yes. Like injecting someone with water or giving them a sugar tablet rather, mm-hmm. than, a, rather than a drug. But they make the point that the, a sort of sham intervention for this doesn't really exist. You can't do something that replicates paying the didgeridoo that yeah. isn't... They, they sort of suggested that you could get someone to play the recorder, but actually any kind of wind instrument is yeah. going to do if? some potentially do something to strengthen the airways. Well, if you have three groups, right? So one is being taught how to play the didgeridoo properly. Yeah. One does nothing and one is taught how to play the didgeridoo badly such that they have no breath control so yeah. they're just kind of blowing weakly into a didgeridoo yeah i was going to say maybe you teach them to play the harp or something something non because it, it's then doing the mental skills and the, the physical skill of learning something new but not anything that's training that's true the breathing yes i don't know i don't know it, it would be interesting i mean I would guess that something like a recorder maybe doesn't require the same impetus. You know, you, you don't blow as hard down a recorder as down a didgeridoo, well, that's true. I assume. Is it, is it about but a st- trombone or a trumpet or something. Is it about the strength or is it about the control? So they talk about uh, the, the, the what the didgeridoo instructor did with them was basically was they talk about teaching them to do sort of circular breathing Mm. where they're kind of breathing in through their nose and out through their mouth in such a way that they can get a continuous airflow through the didgeridoo um, rather than sort of breathing in and out as you normally would do Mm. so i guess that any instrument where you have to do that which probably would include even the recorder just at a lower volume maybe it would do something i don't know Mm, very interesting i mean i feel like with this you know obviously this isn't medical advice this is just a study which is looking at the effects of you know didgeridoo versus no didgeridoo but the good thing is that playing the didgeridoo isn't going to harm you it's not like it's going to have any horrible side effects no 
nope. unless you drop it on yourself or something. Compared yeah, to most or, medications. Or, or you get addicted to it and you end up playing it 24 hours a day and you're keeping up the entire neighbourhood. Yeah, and your partner who was annoyed by the sleep apnea is even more annoyed by the didgeridoo. The fact you won't stop playing the didgeridoo and at they leave you and, oh, this could escalate. I don't it think could. we can advise anything like this. No, no. It's, no, maybe it's a bad idea. Admittedly, it's done on a small sample size, right? The, the 25 participants, 14 in the intervention group. But it's a good start. So all in all, although a randomised control trial using didgeridoo practice as a medical intervention sounds hilarious, this is actually a pretty cool study. But what I do like about it is that they also included a gratuitous photo of a man playing a didgeridoo of his figure one just just because. In case you didn't yeah. know what a didgeridoo looks like. Yeah, or a man. This, yeah, here's <laughs> this fine gentleman playing a didgeridoo. Yeah. What's your paper this week? Well, I have a question for you to start off. Oh, no, not another one. How squeamish do you think you are? Um, Not that. Not that bad. No? Like, a little bit. But, I mean, I'm okay with I'm okay with injections. I'm okay with blood. Yeah. I'm not very keen on vomit. Well, there you go. Think about vomit, right? When you... <laughs> <laughs> good well. great that's yeah late at night recording a podcast that's always what you want someone to say to you <laughs> think about vomit when you feel disgusted by mm. vomit where do you feel that sensation uh, sort of in the throat oh interesting sort of like i mean the smell of vomit kind of makes me want to vomit so it's yeah. sort of it's in that kind of vomity area so you feel like it's coming from your throat yeah do you think there's any other parts of your body that might get involved not really yeah well i can tell you you're wrong and we'll show and i will be sharing that good okay so it's only natural to find some things disgusting it's good for our survival to have a sense of disgust because it means that we won't eat potentially harmful things like feces or rotting food or you know vomit yeah but there are cases where an overactive sense of disgust can be very distressing for people. In certain psychiatric conditions, patients feel misplaced or over-exaggerated disgust, which really affects their lives. And the problem is that unlike some approaches to curing fears, research has shown that repeated exposure to disgusting things doesn't cure that disgust. So it's a really difficult thing to treat. But... By understanding more about what leads people to feel disgust, maybe we can work out how to reduce it in pathological circumstances. Okay. So we already know that disgusting stimuli disrupt the electrical signals in the stomach, so not just your throat. Okay. Because previous research has shown that there's a correlation between disrupted stomach rhythms and a reported sense of disgust. But the question is, what is the mechanism? Well, my paper this week set out to answer just that. The paper is by Nord et al, published in November, titled A Causal Role for Gastric Rhythm in Human Disgust Avoidance. The researchers used a randomised double-blind placebo-controlled trial, mouthful. That's one placebo better than the experimental setup in my paper. It is, it is. So some participants were given domperidone, which is a common anti-nausea medication, and some were given a placebo pill. In order to interpret the results, it's important to remember that domperidone works by normalising the rhythms of the stomach, so making sure that they're very regular. Before any pills were given out, the participants were shown photos of either faeces as a disgust-inducing stimulus or a neutral photo of scarves and buttons. And their eye movements were tracked to show how quickly they looked away from each image. And this gave the study a baseline, so the natural level of watching each image with no drugs. Okay. So yeah. they, they said they chose faeces because it's the most reliable, disgust-inducing substance. Yeah. 
I think vomit would also come pretty high. What, what about what about buttons, though? Because I once met someone with a phobia of buttons. I also thought of this. I met people with phobias of, like, feathers and balloons and zips. And Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think we have to assume that none of these people have a strange aversion to buttons. Okay. Buttons and scarves are considered to be neutral. Okay. But faeces, not neutral. Faeces are disgusting. Then the participants were given either the anti-nausea medication, Domperidone, or a placebo pill. And obviously they didn't know which. That's the point. And then 30 minutes later, the participants were shown the disgusting and neutral images again. And again, their eye movements were tracked to see how long they were looking at the poop versus the buttons and how this compared to pre-medication. The researchers then showed the images again, but incentivized them for looking at the poop. So for every 25 seconds, they could keep their eyes on the photo of the feces. They heard a ka noise and were awarded 25p. Okay. <laughs> you look like you have questions. I keep just... looking at the poop. Keep looking at the poop. Keep ka Yes. How terrible was this photo of a poo? Oh, my... right. Okay. I mean, I, I'm just saying I, I could look at a photo of a poo for a while. Yeah, I know, but it was it's the fact that you've actually got to keep your eyes on it because it's tracking your eye movements. You can't flick away to the buttons to give yourself a little bit of a break. You've got to stir that poop dead in the eyes. But it's not... It's a really gross photo. I'm not going to lie. I looked at the photo. It is foul. I'm not that squeamish. It was disgusting. Okay, okay, right. Because I, I feel like a lot more of the disgust response with feces or vomit or, or things we've done is the smell. As much as the as the sight, That's like true. I don't find the sight of a poo generally offensive. It's it's more the smell. That's I disgusting. feel like the picture of this one, you could almost smell it through the image. <laughs> it was pretty that awful. foul. Okay. It was just very explicit. Anyway, so yes, for every twenty five seconds that they could keep looking at this poop, they were awarded twenty five p. Then after this round, they were again shown the disgusting and neutral images, but with no incentives, just like rounds one and two, and the eye movements were again tracked. So these tests show firstly how the medication affects the time they naturally look at the disgusting images, and how it affects their willingness to look at them when incentivized, and how the process of incentivizing affects subsequent aversion to looking at the disgusting images. Wow, okay. Yeah. That's that's quite a lot to take in. Now, this might all sound like a lot of stuff that we don't need to know, but seeing how incentives affect the disgust response could be useful in therapy for harmful disgust responses, like I was talking about before. So stay with yeah. me. Okay. Right? At both the start and the end of the trial, the participants also had to rate how disgusting they found the images. But this is separate from the eye tracking movements. Yeah. So what did the researchers find? Well, in the first trial, straight after the medication, there was no difference between participants who had taken the placebo or taken the domperidone. And in the incentivized trial, naturally, the participants looked at the gross images longer than they did with no incentives. Because, I mean, 25p isn't much, but you might as well keep looking, right? Yeah, you're going to try. You're going to give it a go. But again, there was no difference between the placebo or the domperidone groups. But in the last trial, the one that was not incentivized but came after the incentivized trial, the participants that took the domperidone spent significantly longer looking at the faeces images than the participants that took the placebo. So mm. interestingly... Don Perido made no difference to how disgusting the participants rated the images. And this is interesting to me because in your study, you were saying that, you know, there were clinical 
signs that the didgeridoo playing had improved their sleep. Yeah. But they hadn't reported any benefits. Ah, yeah. And here, we can tell from their eye movements that they are managing to watch the disgusting images for longer. Yeah. But they don't think that they, they think are it's less still disgusted. Just as disgusting. Yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah. But, you know, so we've got to go with what their eye tracking movements are showing because that is really interesting in telling us, like, literally how disgusted and how much they were avoiding that disgust. Maybe they don't go into this, but there could be a role there as well, though, for the fact that by this point, they've looked at this disgusting poo image so many times that they're sort of becoming numb to it well i think they are and that's why it's interesting to look at the different groups uh yeah that's true okay because we have the two groups so any difference between them is likely to be because of the different treatment groups they're in so these results show the strong link between the feeling of disgust and the stomach's rhythm becoming dysregulated And you must kind of know what this means. I know you said you feel it in your throat, but sometimes you look at something disgusting and your stomach can kind of feel like it turns. Yeah. Essentially, that's its rhythm going haywire. Now, what domperidone does is it forces the stomach to have a regular rhythm. So the medication, in conjunction with the positive reward-based exposure, can reduce disgust avoidance. Now, this is particularly interesting because of what I said at the start, that in previous trials where repeated and incentivized exposure was done without this medication, there was no improvement in the disgust avoidance. But this research has shown that a potential avenue for therapy for people, you know, with this pathological disgust could be this kind of medication in conjunction with incentivized response. And yeah, it could okay. actually have a long-term positive effect, not just literally while you're incentivizing them yeah very clinically relevant and also just really interesting showing what a strong effect the stomach's rhythms has on our disgust response very cool so would it be that they don't need the medication long term as well the medication is just part of the training yeah i think they didn't quite get into that okay so it's it's hard to know but the medication is not actually diagnosed for this kind of thing usually it's just for people who have problems with nausea so i feel like there's a lot more research that can be done here in terms of you know actually getting it regulated for that this kind of condition yeah there's definitely more research that needs to be done but i just think that even if we leave out the specifics of the medicate what medication is being used what we can take away from this is just that actually a lot to do with how we feel disgust is kind of being driven by the rhythm of our stomachs. Mm. That's weird. That is very weird, isn't it? Because like you said, you might feel it in your throat. Yeah, or your nose. Or or your nose or whatever, but but actually your stomach is really getting involved. We're all just driven by our stomachs. Yeah, exactly. So it's a really interesting paper. I really enjoyed this one. But oh no, do not look at the pictures of the turds. And you know what? They're really good. They put them really small. But I zoomed in. I was curious. I was curious. I zoomed in. I zoomed in. Oh, no, it's so bad. I don't think I'm that easily disgusted. But then again, no one has ever asked me to do a staring competition with a turd before. So this is a new experience for me. Yeah. Least of all a staring competition with a turd for money. I know. Yeah. I I could do it for money, I think. I could do it for money. Okay. Who do you think is more squeamish, me or you? Hmm... I don't know. Depends what to. I think we. I think we're kind of similar, but we react to different things. Yeah, because my job basically involves pulling apart rotting carcasses and pulling larvae out, and they do stink, and they blimmin' stink. But then I feel like I'm more disgusted by things like spiders than you are. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, you're not really. Well, good I'm spiders, not disgusted. I'm kind of scared. So you, you just know don't what? want to touch them. Yeah, so I'm going to go with actually. You're more squeamish than me. All right. So just to summarise there, your paper had a photo of a disgusting poo. Yeah. And my paper had a photo of a man playing a didgeridoo. 
Yes, you're definitely the most pleasant one out of the two. Yeah, I I feel like I know which of us had a better time (laughs) reading their papers. (laughs) Yeah, folks, don't zoom in. If if you need to zoom in, they don't want you to see it. Animal Etymologies It's time for some word nerdery. This is a segment suggested by Kate Howlett via email to lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Hey, Kate, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) She's so happy that we have at least one regular listener. I really am. And one of the animals that Kate said she was interested to hear the etymology of was the oryx. Now, oryx is a genus of four species of large antelopes with long pointy horns. And that description is going to become very relevant soon. Do you have any feelings about oryx? They're they're majestic. They are. Very majestic animals. Yeah. Yeah. And also very endangered. So I think it's Mm. Arabian oryx were nearly extinct. And then a very, very intense captive breeding program kind of resurrected them and they were released back into the desert. They were. Oh, you're not even reading my notes. You're no, still, I'm not. No. You stole my material, mate. Oh, conservation evidence. Yeah. We're all over it. Yeah, they were hunted so heavily that they became functionally extinct in the wild in 1972. But due to breeding programmes, reintroductions and strict protections for those that were in the wild, they're now counted as vulnerable by the IUCN, mm. which may not sound great if you're not familiar with the IUCN red list, but vulnerable is a much less serious category than extinct in the wild. So yeah. they're a conservation I, success story. Vulnerable is the, is the least threatened of the threatened categories. Yes, exactly. So that's pretty good. So back to the etymology of oryx. Well, the word oryx comes directly from the ancient Greek word oryx, which means pickaxe. Can you think why? Is it because their horns could be used as pickaxes it's because the horns are so sharp like a pickaxe mm. yeah so i don't think there's any there's no evidence that people took their horns and used them okay as pickaxes. and they're it's not just... they're not very pickaxe shaped either no, no no it's just that they they're very sharp mm. like a pickaxe so it seems that even in ancient greek oryx was already used to describe an antelope too and interestingly it also cropped up in the writings of the author strabo to refer to some sort of great fish probably a narwhal but that also makes a lot of sense because they have that one long overgrown tooth that looks a bit like a pointy horn. Yep. So to look at one species of oryx particularly, the one you've already mentioned, the Arabian oryx, the Arabian oryx's scientific name is oryx leucoryx. Now the luke bit comes from the ancient Greek word leukos, which means white or bright, and refers to the you know white coloration of the species. So if we put those parts together, oryx leucoryx, literally means pickaxe, white pickaxe. Or probably more sensibly, considering that oryx could also just mean oryx, then it's oryx, white oryx. Right. Imaginative, eh? Very imaginative, yeah. So interesting facts about the Arabian oryx, other than the endangered point that you just made. They are adapted for living in harsh desert habitats and they can cope with droughts of up to six months. Wow. They are hardy little guys. Yeah. Also, if they turn sideways, their two horns can look like one, so they're one of the candidates for the animal that might have started the myth of unicorns. So some people say unicorns might be based on narwhals or some other types of antelopes, and no one really knows exactly, but it could be oryx. Ah, yeah. Mm. Also added, maybe, by the fact that in the desert you often get kind of heat hazes, Mm. which sort of make things shimmer and look a bit weird, so you've then got this animal that's a slightly strange shape that you can't quite make out and appears to only have one horn. Yeah. So they are magical, but their name is not very original. Isolation recommendations. 
Right, well, it's time to recommend some of our favourite things for getting through this lockdown number, I don't know, 5072 at this point. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm going all out wholesome this week. This is my new favourite Twitter account. And I think Twitter knows that it's my favourite Twitter account. Because every day, if I look at Twitter in the morning, the first thing I see is a tweet from this account. Because okay. I I just always like them, and I pretty much always share them with you. Oh, I know what and this is going to be now, <laughs> um, and it's it's just so wholesome and beautiful. So the account I'm talking about is at nywolforg, which is the account of the Wolf Conservation Center in the United States. And it's just so wholesome. So as the name suggests, this is a centre which is set up for wolf conservation. But the point of their Twitter account is largely to kind of raise awareness of wolves and get people to realise that wolves are not the sort of aggressive, nasty creatures that they're portrayed as in a lot of literature and films and historically seen as, but actually majestic, amazing, beautiful creatures that we should love and respect. And essentially are the wild ancestors of dogs which so many people love. And so this account tweets majestic photos or videos of wolves looking very peaceful. And it is just the most wholesome account for just a nice little relaxation It's in very meditative. They sometimes post videos of the wolves doing very little, just kind of looking into the distance, having a little schnoozle. And it's yeah. just like, you just need a moment of calm. Just watch that wolf. Be one with the wolf. Basically, those wolves are just everything I want to be, which is like majestic and chilled out, yet strong. So I feel like I need to do a little bit more watching this account and learn the ways of the wolf. Yeah, and and basically what I've discovered, I think, is if you like their posts enough, Twitter realises that this is what you want to look at. And so it just gets bumped up to the top of your newsfeed every time you go on Twitter. So pretty much now I'm guaranteed a daily wolf because that's what Twitter knows I want to see. Oh, that's so much better than like news-related doom scrolling. Totally. I get that every day. So go and check it out. That's at nywolforg. Nothing particularly science-heavy, just just some nice, chilled-out wolf-watching. I love it. Well, that's unfortunately all we've got time for today, folks. But remember that you can always email us to say hi, send us your tips for funny science you found, or ask for the etymology of your favourite animal. Our address is lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com. And we do love getting emails to it. The cat, on the other hand, personally reads all of them and judges them harshly, but don't take it personally. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Bladen. And I'm at Eleanor underscore Bladen. Thanks for joining us again, and we hope you tune in in two weeks' time for another episode of Lockdown Science on CAMFM. FM.